Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. I'm joined by Neil Jones, Director of Tax Banter. Neil, firstly, welcome to Taxiac. Welcome back to Taxiac. Thanks, Robin. It's good to be back. We've done quite a few of these together. We have. And happy birthday to us. It is. This uh, week marks the first anniversary of our podcast uh, program. We're recording episode 32 as we sit here today. And it has been a, a successful venture by Taxbanner. We th- saw the need perhaps to help the market with some interesting information. And that's come at a range of issues from tax professionals, from government uh, bodies, uh, from the tax office themselves, and, and trying to be topical on issues that are relevant, um, current uh, emerging trends and issues, and hopefully those that have been listening to our podcast have seen that benefit. Certainly the uh, statistics that we're getting on those that are viewing and listening, it, it would seem to be hitting some form of mark in the marketplace. And to acknowledge we've got listeners in more than 40 countries now around the world. Yeah, that stat always seems to surprise me about just where in the world people are tapping in, but I suppose that's the modern way of the world. And just a quick note of thanks to you as our facilitator of the program. So, yeah, it's amazing. Some far-flung places are people are listening in. That's great. Thank you, Neil. The last time you and I yacked was the 5th of April. Now, this was days after the federal budget, which, of course, was brought forward due to the timing of the election. And, of course, before the election was held, which saw the unexpected return of the Morrison government. Do you think it was unexpected? Well, the market will debate that for years to come. Um, There are many people who said um, it was a shoe in for Labor, and I said, don't be so sure. Mm. History tells us that election results can be unexpected. Yeah, certainly some people were out there that uh, had the view that the Labor... We we were talking about Labor's tax announced policies because there was a high degree of concern that they would come in. And so with Labor not being successful, um, the Morrison government has been returned and can carry on with their agenda. Look, a number of our clients in training sessions leading up to the election, but post-budget, said, oh, don't worry about going through the budget because we really don't need to know what the government's planning to do because they won't be there after the election. Yeah, that was some sentiment expressed, but again, in a two-horse race, effectively a two-horse race, anything can happen. Now, Parliament has resumed this week. They've uh, basically got three more sitting weeks this year, plus a week, House of Reps only, one week in the Senate. And I just wanted to reflect on where we've landed post-election versus before the election, because the Senate leading into this election, if the government couldn't get the support of the Greens or the opposition, they're relying on the independents. There were 11 of them, and they needed nine of those votes, whereas now... We have six independents and they need four. So would you agree the the Senate is a more workable Senate? I would think that the government will find it easier to negotiate the passage of legislation in today's current parliament. So, yes, as you say, six crossbench senators, one who seems to be very favourable and amenable to the government's agenda, uh, Senator Bernardi. So it might be realistically it's three out of the remaining five. So that should be easier for the government to get its reforms through. And that would be interesting to watch in the, the weeks and months ahead. We still don't sit often enough, in my view, though. Um, it's, you know, long announced measures take ages to get through the parliament and actually become enacted as legislation, where some people on listening to this might remember that, you know, back in 1999, we had some passage of the GST legislation 12 months out from its date of effect. So it led, actually in, enacting law before it starts. 
Now that today is a very unlikely scenario. We're generally legislating after the date of effect. And sometimes we get an announcement that applies and we're in a vacuum and we don't even know what the technical details of the change the law will be. And in some t- cases it doesn't really matter. For example, the, the new low and middle income tax offset, where that isn't actually being claimed until people lodge the 19 return onwards. So the fact that it didn't get enacted until during the 19 year was okay. In fact, it was a few weeks after. But there are other measures where you're in a live transactional environment and you haven't got law backing you up. And particularly where it might be an adverse change to the law that is, you know, goes against the current trend or practice. So something that might deny a deduction or um, take away a concession, you know, where that is happening and we don't yet see the law, um, hopefully the government is responsive to change the date of effect if it does get delayed and delayed and delayed. But as you say, as we sit here in the middle of October and only three more sitting weeks, the government's program is extensive and that's not just tax. I mean, they've got all their other portfolios and areas to be... uh, changing so we just don't sit enough and a common outcome of all this is that practitioners across the country are often unclear on where measures are up to and if you think about all the stages where we start with an announcement discussion paper exposure draft a bill possibly amendments to the bill and then finally an act and this isn't just a case of months this process usually takes years well it can do but yeah you're right though it always steps along the way and then we When it finally does get enacted, you've got to remember what did they actually pass. And when does it start? And what date of effect and what what did they originally announce and has there been changes? Uh, Some of those we might touch on in today's recording. The budget. Um, We're effectively back at zero. Um, What's $700 million between friends? So the budget has effectively been balanced and it is now forecast, of course, to return to surplus in 1920. Um, in my spare time, Neil, I keep track of these budget figures. I know that, Robin. <laughs> so I've got a, a spreadsheet here that takes us me back to 2002, and I've been tracking the original announcement and where we ended up as the final outcome. And according to my records, the last time the budget delivered a surplus, in other words, there was an actual surplus and the final outcome, was 2007-8. And that, of course, was under Costello. And just prior to the global financial crisis. Of course, and there was a, a massive deficit that resulted following, no, no surprise there. So it would be interesting to see as we head back into the black and we are forecast to get up to surpluses of around $20 billion by 22-23. Neil, what does that do in terms of tax policy? If the government's got some surplus funds to deal with, does that go back into infrastructure? Does it get returned in the form of tax cuts? How should this best be used and, and how should tax policy drive that? Well, you could also retire debt. You know, the credit card is maxed out as a nation, so if they are going to return to surplus, which is the plan, and growing that surplus over the outlook period, the four-year forward estimates period, surely we should be paying down the debt. Um, There are investments, but with interest rates globally at, you know, historically low levels, then maybe taking the money or borrowing even more, having those loans, maybe to keep the debt out, uh, to invest in areas that the economy, to help it to grow, to, to stimulate and to provide some employment. Uh, so it's a question of government priorities at the time as to whether they hand it back to the stakeholders, the shareholders, whether they invest in needed areas within the economy or they pay down the bills, pay down the debt. You talk of debt, but the media rarely talks about the gross figure. They often talk about the percentage of GDP and these sorts of expressions, but... 
when we talk about this surplus or deficit, this is in our language, the profit or loss. Mm. So we're moving back into a profit position. Great. But on the balance sheet is this massive liability of around $660 billion worth of, of debt. So chipping away at a $660 billion figure with a $20 billion surplus isn't going to get you very far in a hurry. So we're going to need a lot of years of surpluses to even make a dent in that massive debt figure. Correct. And that's why I'm saying it'll come down to government priorities and who knows where the world economy is heading at the moment with the tensions around the globe in terms of trade and protecting a nation's own sovereignty and sovereign position fiscally. You know, you've got our China-US tensions at the moment, uh, European issues around uh, Brexit. So it's going to be interesting to see where the world economy trends and where we fit in that. So into some measures, and we don't propose to go through the fine print of each of these bills. These are all covered in our training sessions, and, and that's not the purpose of today. But I thought it'd be um, neat to group these into the newly enacted measures, measures that are still before Parliament and measures that we're still waiting on. So some measures that have uh, recently become law. Uh, we've got a very long title, and uh, most of these measures aren't going to have great relevance to our clients, but the Treasury Laws Amendment, making sure multinationals pay their fair share of tax in Australia and other measures Bill 2019. A mouthful. It is a mouthful. But realistically, only a couple of minor tweaks. Um, suppliers, offshore suppliers of accommodation here in Australia. We had an amendment back in 2005 because we didn't know how the internet worked. You had foreign hotel suppliers or tourism operators selling Australian hotels and holidays, but the thought was, well, they'll be selling it to their local customers. So what's that got to do with the Australian tax system? So that was carved out of turnover, and now we've put it back. Because I can sit here today, jump online to Travago or Hotels Combined or any one of a number of suppliers, and if I'm an Aussie spending a night in an Aussie hotel room, I should be paying GST. So that was a reversal of something from years ago. Uh, the thin cap changes a minor tweak there to make sure people use their financial values in their financial statements. And they're probably the main ones in that bill. All right. We've got another bill that's also been enacted, Treasury Laws Amendment Putting Members' Interests First Bill 2019. So this is about superannuation. And again, just a couple of things that had been previously brought into Parliament but lapsed when the election was called. Uh, the controversy about having your member balance eroded by fees for life insurance, particularly across multiple accounts. Uh, the idea was that if uh, certain members should not have insurance unless they wanted it, so making a conscious decision to have that insurance. So people under 25, new members to a fund, or small balances, less than 6,000, it will be an opt-in process rather than an opt-out. So the trustees can't tell you you're getting insurance unless you say you want it. There is a bit of an exception there for what we call dangerous occupations. Is tax training dangerous? Well, I don't regard it as dangerous, but some of my team here might think it's a bit dodgy. All right. On to so another newly enacted measure, Treasury Laws Amendment 2018 Superannuation Measures Number 1 Bill. Now, this was actually a resurrected bill from prior to the election, but with the notable omission of the SG amnesty in this bill. We'll come back to that shortly. Mm. So this one is now Lauren, and what does this bill have in it? Well, there was a problem of no fault of a person, but if you're a high income earner with multiple employers, then having them each contribute their 9.5% mandated SG contributions, you could easily exceed your concessional cap at 25,000. 
So providing a mechanism where that doesn't happen, so that's been now enacted, and basically, without going into too much of the detail, the employee will then go to the tax office and say, I'm impacted by this. They can apply. They then get an employer exemption certificate. They take that back to their employer, and that basically resets the maximum super to zero for that employer. I can't give it to every employer. They do have to leave one employer paying super for them. But that will alleviate a problem through no fault of the member themselves. The other measure, the non-arms-length income measure, is a little bit, or at the moment, generating a bit of controversy. So the government wanted to make sure that the income from a super fund could be taxed at the top rate of 45 cents in the dollar, not only where the income perhaps was non-arms-length, but expenditure incurred in relation to gaining that income was on a non-arms-length basis. So a straightforward example would be if you've got a limited recourse borrowing arrangement in place and you're not charging any interest on the loan, then potentially the rent coming from yeah, that asset could be a problem. So zero is a, is a non-arms-length amount, as would be a less than commercial rate. So if the fund's not paying full whack of interest on that loan, that's a non-arms-length expenditure. The income to which that borrowing had purchased the asset, so the income from that asset subject to that LRBA, it's a clear connection to the income and therefore that income would be taxed at 45. And that's really what they were trying to target here. You would think so, but not all expenses are particularly tied to one specific asset. Now, some of the examples in the EM as this was going through is you've got a real estate agent, you know, there's a rental property in the super fund, the agent manages the rent roll effectively, but they're the member. Doesn't charge a commission. Doesn't charge a real estate fee. Now, that clearly relates to the rental property. So, again, it's easy to see. But let's take the accounting fee. Now, it's pretty common in the, across the accounting sector for a member, let's say a partner in a practice, uh, a big four or second tier or even a small suburban practice, that the partner might have their own SMSF and it needs to have its accounts done or its tax returns prepared. Now the member cannot charge a fee if they perform that service as trustee of the fund. They would no longer be a self-managed super fund. They would breach the CIS rules. A trustee cannot be paid for performing their duties as trustee. So the practice might actually do the work but not charge. Now, a recent ATO document in draft at this stage has stated that because that accounting or tax return fee is not related to any specific income, it must therefore relate to all of the income of the SMSF, which means the entire amount would be taxed at 45. Now, that cannot be what the government was intending here. And technically, you could argue it's not correct. There's an argument that the expenditure rules under the NALI provisions that they've enacted refers to general tax concepts. So if you look at 8-1 as an expense incurred in gaining or producing income, tax-related expenses aren't claimed under 8-1. Mm-hmm. They're claimed under 25-5. So is the ATO technically correct? Now, it is only draft, and we will be making submissions to the ATO on their views. But basically, that would mean across the accounting sector, at least, there's quite a number of people who are flinching at the moment at the very thought. Now, the solution would be is the SMSF pays for the service. And that raises questions about whether that's an appropriate amount and is it getting money out of the fund that ultimately and the trustee benefits? Uh, yeah, generally it will go to the practice rather than the individual member, but mm. they do have a share of the spoils perhaps. And if they're a sole trader? Sole trader, they've got an issue. Yeah, yeah. yep. And the final piece in that bill I still have some fundamental problems with, it's adding the liability of a limited recourse loan to the total super balance. Now, total super balance to me is how much I can take out of my fund if I want to cash out. So in other words, how much can I have? 
if there's a liability there, before I can access my money, we'd have to retire that debt. So we're actually adding it back. So we're adding a liability to what I believe is an asset calculation. Now, to me, that's a fundamentally flawed concept. I understand why they're doing it, and it is only a prospective change. Um, Most of the history has been grandfathered, but I still have a fundamental difficulty with that change. Neil, I see it more as a liability being added onto the equity, which is on the same side of the balance sheet. Well, you could look at it that way, but uh, I mean, total super balance is what can I have? Yes, but to me that's the value of the members' benefits coming out. Yeah, well, well, the super fund accounts, you've got assets on one side, members' balance is the liability. But here you've got an additional liability through the LRBA, the Limited Recourse Borrowing Arrangement. This amendment was really trying to target people who pulled money out of their fund through conditions of release, put it back into the fund by way of a Limited Recourse Borrowing Arrangement in order, amongst other things, to get themselves back under 1.6 so they could make further non-concessional contributions. And if you're pulling it out to put it back in, I get it. But if you never pulled it out in the first place, I've always had a a problem with this amendment going through Mm. to uh, target those where there was never a withdrawal in the first place. There may have been a better way to achieve the government's objective. Mm. Um, Certainly, I I had a couple of conversations with Treasury and they said, well, that's our drafting instructions. Look, also worth noting, the bill putting through the personal tax cuts was enacted in in July, early July. They got that through without much of a whisper really it just had to wait bang, for bang. a federal election to come and go but yeah but having been returned to power bang bang it went through very it did. quickly so for anyone who's listening yes we definitely have tax cuts kicking in from 1 july 18 1 july 2022 and 1 july 2024 that includes the introduction and, and continuation for four years in total of the low and middle income tax offset so neil all those changes they're final they're enacted they will not change. There'll be no further amendments, comma, unless a future government decides yes. to amend these rules. Correct. Because those are out to July 24 or so. Which? So I think two more elections before that date kicks in. So. Yeah, absolutely. Now, bills that are before Parliament that are notable. Um, one that we are tracking very closely at the moment was due to be debated in the Senate yesterday. Um, it would presumably flow onto today's schedule, but we'll, we'll wait again. The Treasury Laws Amendment 2019 Tax Integrity and Other Measures Number 1 Bill. So it's an omnibus bill, has seven schedules in it. Um, Most notable ones are the denial of the small business CGT concessions where the assignee does not become a full partner in the partnership. So it's just where there's an assignment of the income or capital but without the, uh, the full assignment of the partnership interest. Circular trust distributions. I've always had an issue with these measures. The TB oh. statements, the trustee reporting rules. I uh, haven't seen those for 20 years. Apparently they happen because we've got new legislation that's still targeting these things. Um, I just feel if distributions are going round in circles in the one income year and a trust is not including that distribution, then that's just straight evasion and they don't need fancy provisions like these to, to deal with it. Um, but they're extending these to family trusts, which are currently excluded. They're going to prevent an employer from being able to treat a sell-set contribution as an SG contribution. Um, morally corrupt, this one? Uh, I think the government's term was unscrupulous employer, but they're only just following what the law said. So I think this has been on their books to be changed for about four or five years. So it's good that it's finally happened. And significantly, we've also got proposed measures which will deny deductions for the cost of holding vacant land. Yeah, that one's causing a bit of concern in the way it was drafted. Um, yesterday there was some amendments tabled as the bill was scheduled for debate, so do they go far enough to appease all those concerns? There is some concessions for primary production. 
Uh, we'll find there's a couple of other there's the government amendments themselves. There's a couple of other amendments from the minor parties. We'll see how it travels through Parliament and whether they are ongoing. If they pass in the Senate, they'll have to go back to the House for ratification. It will. I think significantly we've got measures that potentially will deny deductions where the property is actually being rented, but you would not be able to claim a deduction for the holding costs. And that cannot be the government's intent. If the oh, income is accessible, but you deny deductions. Well, I mean, we do do it in other areas, such as criminal activities. You know, the proceeds will be accessible. We deny deductions under 26-54, but I don't think this is criminal activity, so I don't think the same principle should apply here. So let's just keep an eye on it and see what they do. We shall. Now, significantly, the SG amnesty has been resurrected. We thought it was dead buried, but it obviously wasn't quite cremated. No, sadly, I was doing a webinar on the afternoon of the reintroduction of the super guarantee, and I just deleted all that amnesty material from my presentation. But yes, it's back, and with a bit more time to perhaps delinquent employers to come forward. So it will run till six months after this bill passes, if it can get through Parliament. Which is sensible, because instead of having that fixed time, which, as happened on the last occasion, it it ended before the bill was even enacted, we've now got a, a certainty that once it becomes law, we've still got a further six months, and that's sensible. However, by now, with the, all of this previous road that we've travelled on, hopefully there's not too many delinquent employers out there. I'd like to think so, but gosh, in my travels, I think we can all see there are employers out there that are paying it late or not paying it at all. The one thing in this bill that was different to the last day, Robin, and I think it is to try and encourage that behaviour, the Commissioner will be legislatively denied from remitting the Part 7 penalties below 100%. So at the moment, you know, Part 7 imposes penalties starting at 200% and then the Commissioner remits down. This, if it gets through, will stop him going below 100% if you're caught out and you haven't come clean during the amnesty. Which is significant. And I think that's, you know, stick and carrot. Come forward, do the right thing. If you don't, you're certainly not going to be protected and your penalty will not be reduced by the exercise of a discretion by the Commissioner. Neil, I'm still calling for a review of these rules. They've been around for, what, 27 years now. And I feel that they are draconian in the way that they treat an employer who was one day late in pretty much the same way as someone who never pays their super. Now, you've got the 23A offset, but leaving that to one side, um, I think there should be a, a better way of dealing with employers who don't deal with it, as opposed to those who are just a little bit late. And I think these rules are, are quite harsh in the in the way that the self-assessment does require them to come forward, make notifications and, and have all those penalties. Now, another bill that's currently before Parliament, which we're keeping an eye on, the Combating Illegal Phoenixing Bill. And you may recall in a, a recent podcast I did with Robin Erskine, uh, she defined for me very neatly the difference between legal phoenixing, which is not a, a term I would normally associate with phoenixing, and illegal. So notably, these measures which are going to extend the estimates and the director penalty notice regime to unpaid GST, luxury car tax and wine equalisation tax owed by companies. You don't need any phoenix activity. Correct. Although the tax office in a draft law companion ruling has suggested that they'll only take these measures against directors where it has been Phoenix activity. But I agree with you, the legislation does not confine it. Um, it applies across the board. So relying on the Commissioner's good faith to target the uh, the worst offenders here. Yeah, I think so. And I think that might be the, the start-up approach from the tax office. Let's go after the recidivists, the serial offenders. And the, the heading of the bill sort of indicates it's for phoenixing activity, the ATO has certainly indicated that's where they'll start, at least with these new powers. But it's a game changer. A struggling business out there looking for cash has often 
had resource to ATO funds to help them survive through a rough period. The Bank of ATO? The Bank of the Taxman. And this would, of course, you know, GST is one of those sources of funding and this will make directors who engage in such practices perhaps think twice. So it's a bit of a game changer. Agreed. There's also a measure which is going to impose a $10,000 cash payment limit from 1 January next year, making it not just a um, an imposition of civil penalties of anywhere between twelve dollars and $300,000 on those who both make and accept a payment in cash of $10,000 or more for goods or services, but it carries with it a two-year jail term if you knowingly exceeded the limit. And I've been using an example where, you know, a householder gets a tradie in, he gets a, two quotes, you know, there's a differential pricing model, and historically maybe that's been the Aussie thing to do. But that householder, if they know and make such a payment, could go to jail for two years. Now, they're going to know it's more than $10,000 because clearly someone handing over 12000 knows that's more than ten. How does the person know that they would be guilty of this offence by exceeding that limit? Well, I think what I've been suggesting to people is that when this passes, we will be bombarded with an advertising campaign the likes of which we've never seen. So we'll have maybe some animations of someone who's handing over a wad of notes. So we're going to get it, radio commercials, TV commercials, tax officers will be bombarding us. So the knowledge criteria for that criminal offence, they're going to say, well, we knew you had to know because of the extensive campaign we ran. And you're running over the media for the last 24 hours or so has been this fairly uh, prominent story about cash being handed over and hundreds of thousands of dollars in a a bag at uh, a certain casino. (laughs) Um, You would think that would be falling under these measures. Well, there's many uses for an Aldi shopping bag, I suppose. There are. Um, Just to be clear, this isn't going to apply where, Neil, you said you're carting me for 20,000 cash. We're both private consumers. Um, That would be beyond scope. But if you're a business dealing with me or we are two businesses, absolutely we're in these rules. Yeah, the carve-out for consumers or private citizens is uh, private to private. So a carve-out that is not going to apply if the payment is in the course of furtherance of an enterprise. So if I'm dealing with a tradie, that's a payment in the course of furtherance of the enterprise. So I'm caught. And I can see how the the car could be tracked and traced because you've got VINs for the engines and you've got registration plates and so on. It's it's hard to hide a car. But if the tradie comes in to do some work on the deck out the back and I pay him 25,000 cash, it's going to be interesting to see how the uh, the government's going to be able to monitor those sorts of activities. Yes. And there are some ethnic groups and certain pensioners who like dealing in cash. So I think there's going to be uh, interesting to watch how this rolls out. Notably, this bill has gone off to a Senate committee until the 7th of February, even though the measures start on the 1st of January. So that would suggest it can't be enacted before its commencement. So some other proposed measures we are waiting on. Now, the most significant here, Division 7A. Gosh, this is like a a perennial broken record, isn't it? Division 7A has had a chequered history. Um, Every time we perhaps find a way to circumnavigate the provision so that we don't end up with a deemed dividend, there's been a Band-Aid placed over the law. So the Board of Taxation was asked to review the effectiveness of Division 7A. They had a couple of discussion papers. We then had a government release and exposure draft of what we might do. That was in October 2018, and here we are in October 2019, and still no changes. Back on budget night, Josh Frydenberg said, we'll push it back another year. Which was for the second time now. Second time. So 1 July 2020, will we see the government's intended changes before then, or are we still waiting? But it has had a tortuous um, 
Have you got Have you got a case of red on this one? Uh, I haven't got any gambling debts on this. I'm not making any bets on the when we'll see the Division 7A reform. This one's too hard to call. It is. Um, last time when Treasury were going to release the consultation paper, they kept telling us imminent. So I said Christmas, and it came out in October. So as we sit here in October now, what is that, so seven, eight months out from the date of effect, when will we see what they're intending to do? We'll have another round of consultation, of course, I think. And it's not beyond the realm of possibility that next budget, next May, there is a further announcement to delay it by a further 12 months. Potentially. We shall see. Licensing fame and image. Individuals who are licensing their, their image or their, their appearance, their, their fame across to another entity and then being able to effectively split the income. This is something the government wanted to change, but we're still waiting on some detail. Absolutely. We have a, a consultation paper on it, but no actual mechanism on how the money ends up in the individual's tax return. Now, we're technical people, and if I've got a commercial agreement with my trust that is licensing my image with a cornflake maker so that my face is on the back of a cornflake box, I mean, commercially, that is a contract between my trust and that organisation. And the asset is the image, not the person Correct. involved. And the ATO has always accepted that you could licence the use of an image into another entity for it to gain or produce the income, just don't be too aggressive with it. Now, the government has said, OK, it's going to be in the hands of the individual, but the mechanism as to how that happens, do we have a whole new regime or do we just tweak the personal service income rules and redefine what is personal service income? I've been thinking it's got to be like a PSI attribution. Yeah, commercially, do what you want. Payment goes where you like, but for tax purposes, it's got to come back to the so, individual. And we have that framework already. So you could just redefine PSI as... Payments that are mainly a reward for your efforts or skills or use of your image. Include it, yeah. Very easy tweak. Now, some lapse bills. Um, there are three key measures which we're still keeping an eye on. The modernisation of the registers with ASIC, so in particular the introduction of a director identification number. Yeah, I think that's a fairly minor. It's a mechanical thing and it's not an unreasonable thing for the government to want to track... Uh, it would help with identifying Phoenix behaviour. Yes. Uh, shadow directors, sham directors. So I don't. I have no problems with that. It'll just happen when it happens. R and D changes now, notably supposed to start one July eighteenth. So you've got to think if this is resurrected, that it would be a, a delayed start date. It will have a change of start date. And again, what are the, what does the government do with research? There's been a bit of commentary in the press at the moment and some lobbying about what we should do to incentivise people out there and encourage innovation and uh, taking entrepreneurial risks. So to change from a deduction to an offset, which we did some years ago, and then to tweak and try and reward those with a what the government called R&D intensity. So the more you did, the more you got rewarded. So those R&D changes are probably, I think, a little lower on the priority, but certainly there's enough people talking about them. How do we reward innovation? Do we need cash grants? Do we do a... Uh, some form of other assistance. Is, is R&D the... too hard these days? It seems that anyone who makes a claim is just about guaranteed an audit. You're going to be scrutinised because at the same time as they're trying to encourage innovation, they don't want people to take advantage of these government handouts. Well, to be fair, there has been some who have pushed the envelope on what they regard as R&D. So I think there's got to be caution. As we used to see with other concessions, whether it be the in investment allowance years ago film expenditure when you give a free kick a bit of a concession sometimes it attracts an element who are very interested in the tax benefit of the concession but not necessarily interested in the underlying 
making a film, investing in assets, or perhaps investing in research and development. Another measure which has, uh, again, been monitored by us for some time, and, and I've been particularly outspoken on the, uh, the position the government's taken on this, the proposed changes to the main residence exemption and how it will affect non-residents. Well, it was really, really draconian the way they proposed the change to the law. You got no recognition for perhaps many, many years, maybe in excess of 30 years of living in a dwelling. So the way they had designed it was there was a threshold question. At the time of the CGT event, in other words, at the time of entering the contract to sell, if you were a foreign resident, you get no recognition whatsoever. And notably, you also don't get any step-up in cost-based to market value. You can't use the six-year absence rule. You get nothing. You get a little bit of discount prorated for the number of days. So uh, expat communities around uh, the world, um, Aussies have gone to work offshore, very distressed if they retained their properties. Uh, there was a window. There was an opportunity for people to divest before 30 June 19, but that's come and gone. Still no legislation and it hasn't been reintroduced. And we're two and a half years on from the original announcement and we still don't have certainty. Yes. Now, early July, um, I had some interactions with um, one of the media outlets and, and they were able to confirm with the Treasurer's office that indeed the government is still committed to this policy. But that was two months ago when we still haven't seen any sign of, of resurrected legislation. Well, they are sitting for another three weeks, so maybe before the... Uh, Look, I don't the... want to hurry things up or wish this upon these expats, but um, certainly the resolution of the uncertainty would be good. Now, superannuation, I feel like this is a topic in its own right, and we, of course, recently did an episode with Liz Westover, so I don't want to revisit all of the issues that she and I went through. But just generally, where are we sitting with super? What would you expect in the next period ahead? We've got the SG Amnesty working its way through, and that's notable. The speculation in my head is, you know, the money in super is just phenomenal. We're approaching 2.8 trillion. Um, the SMSF sector is the largest component of that. Uh, we've got an ageing population. We're all getting older. We're living longer. And if you look at our retirements policy, uh, it's no surprise that Josh Frydenberg decided to commission an inquiry. Now, everyone will have their views on it, but my... If I was to have a gamble, and you know I'm a gambler, something to restrict the amount you can withdraw on a lump sum basis may be something that the government might look at. So, It's starting I, to sound like a reasonable benefit limit. There were some rules previously that sort of restrict that, but if you at 65, you retire, you take all your money, you blow it up against the wall, and then you put your hand out for government pension. Government pensions is still the highest expenditure that the government has. So, and as we're all olding, we'll have more and more people in that age pension bracket. Now, we know they're extending the age qualification for age pensioners, but I think in the last actuarial report, by 2055, we will have life expectancies of 97 and 95. If we're going to live to be that long, we need to have some money stashed away to, to enable us to live for that long without reliance on a government pension. So the government's conflicted. We want people to have money for their retirement, but we give tax concessions for it. Now, we've seen over the last few years restrictions of those concessions. The introduction of the transfer balance cap, uh, the limitation of how much you can place into super. Now, if your total super balance is 1.6, you're done making non-concessionals. We've reduced the concessional cap. It wasn't that long ago. It was in excess of 100,000. So they're, they're saying we want you to have money for your retirement, 
but it costs us a lot of money, so we're doing things to stop you getting your money. In it's the still one of the most significant tax expenditures of the government. The main residence exemption is the first one. Um, this sits behind the MRE. It does. So it does cost them a lot of money. And that's just a guess. I mean, it's called taxation estimate. Uh, but, um, yeah, super. What would what'd be the main change? That would be the one that I think would not surprise me that they cap how much you can take. Some years ago, a young lady, one of my sessions, we were discussing how they're increasing some of these ages, age, pension age and retirement age and, and so on. And she said, I'm never going to get there. The older I get, the more they keep increasing the age. And she was just concerned she would never actually reach the retirement age. It's like the donkey or the mule with the glass of water on a stick or the carrot on the stick bobbing along in front of them. They'll never quite get there. <laughs> now, notably, we've got some reviews that are... Still underway, but we're getting close to seeing some final reports. The Productivity Commission has released a draft report on all the remote area concessions, so zone tax offset and the FBT concessions and also the uh, remote area assistance. Um, it was reported earlier this week that two-thirds of those claiming the zone tax offset live in major cities like Townsville and Darwin and Cairns. A redefining of the boundaries. I mean, remoteness is dependent on how far you live away from a town with a population of certain sizes. But we take a census to find out how many people are in a town. And for FBT example, in those remote areas, we're still using the census from 1981. So perhaps we should be redefining the boundaries. Well, zone tax offset, they're using figures from the 1940s. So it's slightly out of date. Yeah. So that'll take its course and the government will make some changes. Well, you've already touched on the review of the retirement income system. So really this is looking at three things, the means-tested age pension, the compulsory superannuation regime, which we all know as the SG system, and that's already enacted to go to 12%. Um, something, Neil, that I come across out there in my travels, people don't think that's already law. And it has already been enacted, so if indeed we're not going to go up to 12%, there would need to be legislative amendments to prevent that. Yes, and there's, again, some vested interests will say it's not enough. There are other parties will say it's too much. Uh, you've got the, the low to middle income earners. Would they better off having the money in their pocket to stimulate the economy and spend it rather than have it stuck away for another 30 or 40 years waiting for them to chase that carrot that we spoke of? So they're looking at the three pillars, the, the age pension, compulsory super and voluntary savings, which will include home ownership. Um, there'll be a final report released to the government mid-next year. Further, the Tax Practitioners Board and the Tax Agent Services Act, uh, this was going to be reviewed within three years of its introduction in 2009, so better late than never. But um, yeah, About time to see if it's doing its job, so 10 years down the road. Look, it's not bad that actually we have got the benefit of the extra seven years' worth of data and activity, so from that perspective, they've got something to work with. Uh, Keith James, uh, previously at the Board of Taxation, is heading up that review and it will be interesting to see what the recommendations are and, and whether we see legislative amendments. So, Neil, a year ago we sat here recording our first tax yak and... I remember it well. And we were looking at what might happen and how it would eventuate and who was going to win the election. So, let me throw the crystal ball at you again. What will all this look like by our second birthday? I think in the next 12 months it will be a bit of government consolidation. Uh, they've been returned. They've got three years to uh, deal with their program. I think they will put all of their stated announcements to Parliament. It might just take a little while. I think the biggest thing that we can expect over the next 12 months is the DIV-7A reforms, particularly for the SME space. Uh, it's the major one that we're waiting on, particularly as the board basically wanted to say to the government, forget legacy issues, let's just bring everything into this modern world. 
So historically, those old 108 loans, you know, the pre-4th of December 97 ones, let's bring them forward. Uh, so Div 7A is off a lot of people's minds because it's just taken so long, so it's almost dropped off their radar. So I think that will cause a lot of concern as we head towards, you know, 2020. And when I say that, 2020, in my head, I never thought I'd see that, but it's you know, three months away. You're still alive and kicking. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's a surprise. A good thing. <laughs> Some of the gamblers that I know have had money that this would not have occurred, that the way I live my life, I would have expired several years ago. <laughs> well, it's good to see you're still here. So I think politically it would be interesting to see what impact Jackie Lambie has. She's really the um, the casting vote in the Senate at the moment. Um, and we'll be interested to see uh, how the measures either get held up or debated or uh, are passed easily in the upper house. And the other thing I think will be the, the economic climate of the globe, you know, of where we end up, you know, are we heading to another you know, crisis? Uh, however, that might be triggered. It might be uh, conflict. It might be economic. Uh, but again, we're not immune from playing in the world space. So... What happens globally will impact us uh, for commodity pricing and everything else. So that will be the impact that has on the government's return to surplus and what they've got in terms of funds and uh, capability of doing things. So I think it'll be hands on the wheel, steady, steady, steady. I don't expect them to go out and make broad sweeping changes. Not mid-term. Not in the middle of a uh, three-year term. You know, one day I'd like to see the fact that we have one Income Tax Assessment Act. Not do. I'm going to boldly say I don't think it's going to happen in my career. Yeah. I'd like to think so, but um, it was a, a well-meaning intention that has, has been abandoned in favour of other priorities. Well, it hasn't been abandoned. It's just, prior, as you say, priorities. So, but, you mm-hmm. know, one day, one day we'll have one income tax assessment. We're like unique on the planet. No one else has two. We've got two. We do lots of things unique in Australia mm-hmm. with tax. Yeah. So in a year's time, as we celebrate the second anniversary of our podcast program, who knows where we'll be. So thank you, Neil, for making all of this possible. Thank you to our listeners also for listening in regularly. Um, we wouldn't have this program without you, and um, we love sharing our exciting conversations on tax with you um, on a regular basis. If you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are because it will help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time. Mm-hmm.